Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. I want to open up with a little story. There's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Jack Groppel. Jack works with uh, leaders in various fields and, and professions to help people optimize performance uh, for their industry, for whatever field they're in. Well, some years back, he did this training experiment in the swamplands of Florida, and he did this experiment with two different groups of people. And this experiment went something like this. The first group of people were a bunch of NFL linemen. Their mission was to run through a trail about a mile long, get to the end of the trail, touch a white fence, and then turn back and go back to the starting point. It's a pretty easy mission. But just before the men took off, Jack added one final important detail. He told them that a wild boar was spotted in the area that morning. He told them how dangerous wild boars can be, and he told them that they needed to be on high alert. What he didn't tell them was that he planted a cameraman along the way, um, and this cameraman was hiding behind some bushes. So these guys set out on their mission, these huge men, all over 300 pounds. They start running toward their target. These massive NFL linemen jog their way around a bend in the trail, and just then, the cameraman begins to snort and to shake the bushes And like that, those NFL linemen scream for dear life, do a 180, and hightail it back to the starting point. They never touched the white fence. Jack then repeated this same exercise, but this time with a different group of people. This time, the group consisted of four elite members of an FBI SWAT team. These operatives were told the exact same thing, same mission, they had to touch the fence, and he also warned them about this supposed wild boar. Well, these FBI agents, they jog their way around the bend in the trail, and the cameraman, again, he begins to snort, he begins to shake the bushes, except this time, this group didn't hightail it back. All of a sudden, when they heard the snort, when they heard the shaking of the bushes, they stopped and got into combat position, and they held their ground, and they stayed there. See, the difference between the group of men representing the NFL and the group of men representing the FBI can be summed up in one word, courage. Courage. See, when it comes to living a life of faith, courage is a necessary ingredient. So today, as we come to Genesis chapter 14 in our series that we're calling A Stumbling Faith, We get to peer into another event in Abram's life and watch as he demonstrates a growing faith. He he demonstrates in this chapter a courageous faith marked by humility. 
So last week we watched as Abram retraced his steps from Egypt back into Canaan. He and his nephew Lot had accumulated a large amount of flocks and herds, and then their herdsmen are fighting over the land, so they realized they needed to part ways so each of them would have sufficient land uh, to settle on. Abram takes the high road of generosity. He allows Lot to take the first pick. So Lot takes what he most wanted, what was most pleasing to the eyes. And that's when we begin to see Abram's faith developing more fully. You start to see him really believing the promise that God's going to provide for him, that God's going to protect him no matter what. And chapter 13 then closed with Abram building a third altar to the Lord, signaling again that he is remaining steadfast in walking by faith in the promises of God. So then we come to chapter 14, and chapter 14 starts, and we learn, this probably takes place some years after the last event, and we learn that there's a political conflict between various uh, kings in that region. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, it's a 24 verses in this chapter. We're going to kind of make our way through the chapter, and then we're going to come back and talk about how that applies to us, how some of the truths in that passage apply to us. So Genesis chapter 14, starting in verses 1 and 2. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So you understand everything that's happening, right? <laughs> now, there's a lot of names, lots of places there, but, but let's simplify this a bit. Okay, so verse 1 essentially mentions four powerful kings. Amraphel, Ariok, Keterleomer, and Tidal. Okay, and we have a little map up here. So you can see the map on the screen. You can see the general area of these four cities. These four kings form this sort of of, uh, international coalition. And when we say kings here, we're not talking about kings of nations and countries like like we would think of. We're talking about kings of of smaller cities, these city-state type kings. So these four kings were rulers from these various city-states stretching, you can see, from what would be modern-day Turkey down to uh, modern-day Iraq and Iran. And these kings, verse 2 tells us, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So these four eastern kings are making war with these five other kings who had their own little coalition of, of, uh, around the Dead Sea area. And they were in the land of Canaan. Now notice here that one of these kings is the ruler over Sodom. It says Bera, king of Sodom. Remember from last week, Lot chose to settle near the vibrant cities in the Jordan Valley, and Abram settled in the western part of Canaan. And we're told in chapter 13 that Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. So Sodom was known for its rampant wickedness and its sexual immorality. Verse 3, it says, And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. So these five southern kings, these five Dead Sea kings, they joined forces in this place called the Valley of Sidim, and this was likely an area just south of the Dead Sea, uh, also known as the Salt Sea here. In those days, you have to realize that this area was lush and vibrant, not like it is today, very dry and arid. So we have these four powerful eastern kings and these five local uh, Dead Sea kings. You understand in the picture here? Now, verse 4 tells us why these five local kings were joining forces. Verse 4 says, 12 years, 
they had served Keter-Laomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So the picture that we're getting here is that this, uh, this dude, Keter-Laomer, was kind of an overlord, and he dominated these cities of these other five uh, southern kings. For 12 years, these five kings had to pay tribute, had to pay taxes to Keter-Laomer, probably for protection. But eventually they get fed up. They want their own independence, so they rebel against him by withholding taxes for a year. So what does King Keter-Laomer do? Well, he gets his three other king buddies. They devise a war plan to go to battle with these five Dead Sea kings. Now, because they have a way to travel and a bit of land to cover in their journey, they're also going to conquer any other tribes and villages that they happen to come across in their path. Verses 5 through 7. It says, In the 14th year, Keter-Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Amim and Shavakiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Again, lots of names and places there. But uh, there's a map here. You can take a look if you could see the, the circles on the map so you could kind of visualize the route that these kings took. So Keter-Laomer and these other three kings, they assemble from the north. They make their way south. They defeat the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Amim, and the people living on Seir in the southern uh, border of the wilderness. Then they fish hook back around, and then they attack a place called En-Mishpat, and then they make their way north toward the Dead Sea, and they defeat those who were living in Hazazan Tamar. So the picture that we're getting are these four kings essentially laid waste to every single village and clan that, they, that crossed their path as they made their way south and north back in Canaan. And now the troops continue toward the Dead Sea region to punish those five rebel kings. Verses 8 and 9. It says, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined valley in the battle of Sidim, with Keter-Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. So the five Dead Sea kings go out to battle these four eastern kings in an area near the Dead Sea. And as it turns out, these five kings and their clans are no match whatsoever for the eastern kings and their militia. Look at verse 10. It says, Now the valley of Sidim was filled of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the area around the Dead Sea was known to have these, these asphalt or these, these tar pits. And because these guys were no match for the eastern kings, they retreat. Some of the soldiers fall into the pits, while the kings and some of those who survived the battle escape to the hill country for protection. Verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and went their way. So the victorious kings of the east plunder and take captive the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Satisfied with their success, satisfied with everything they have accomplished, everything they've accumulated, they start their northward march back home. But there's one problem. Who do we know that lives near Sodom? Abram's nephew Lot. Look at verse 12 says they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. 
Now, here's just a, a little observation. Genesis 13 tells us that when Abram and Lot were, were dividing the land, that Lot looked to Sodom, right? He first looked to Sodom. It was pleasing to his eyes. Then, verse, in chapter 13, it says he moved toward Sodom. He greedily picked the best part of the land, and now his choice has proven disastrous because now we're told he was dwelling in Sodom. So you see the progression of Lot there. And as a result of his foolishness, he becomes a prisoner of war and begins to experience some consequences. Lot and everything he possessed was being carted off to a foreign land. So, where's Abram in all this? He's living peaceably in the western part of Canaan. He's no doubt well aware of the battles that are taking place in the land of Canaan, in the land that God promised him. But interestingly, none of this appears to have really bothered Abram. As far as he was concerned, the land that uh, that God promised to him was going to come to him one way or the other, regardless of which silly king claimed ownership of it at any particular time. He wasn't going to get involved in a political conflict between these self-serving kings. That is, until he learns that his nephew was captured. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. So a POW escapes, makes his way to Abram's encampment and fills him in and, and Abram's allies in on everything that has happened, that Lot has been captured. And now let's see how Abram responds to this news. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. See, this is where we start to see just how courageous and humble Abram's Abram's faith is growing. He hears about his nephew. He he essentially turns into Braveheart. He gets his loyal posse of 318 men, and without hesitation, he heads 120 miles north to rescue his captive nephew. Verse 15, And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So Abram and his men, they divide up. They camp outside the city where Kirileomer and the other kings were celebrating their success. They wait for night, and then they start attacking at different angles, trying to cause chaos, trying to cause panic, and the proud, self-reliant, unsuspecting kings flee for their lives. And just like that, the wandering shepherd Abram and his few men defeat and humiliate the kings of the east and their numerous soldiers who laid waste to city after city after city after city. Verse 16. Then he, Abram, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram brings back all the stolen possessions and he rescues all the people who were taken captive, including his nephew, Lot. And in no time, word of Abram's courage would certainly have started to make its way around the region and and his victory spreads throughout the region. And then the next verse starts a a pivotal turning point in chapter 14. See, Abram is going to be met by two very different kings who each represent very opposite worldviews. 
See, with Abram having shown us how his faith in God's promise gave him courage, now he's going to have to decide how he's going to respond to that success, how he's going to respond to that victory and his rising fame. Is he going to receive the honor himself? Is he going to take all the credit, or is he going to give credit to God? In verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. Okay, so here we see the first king who goes out to meet Abram. Remember, this is the king, the king of Sodom, who was one of the kings who ran away when, they were, when Laomer was defeating him and his militia. So he hears the news of Abram's success. He hears that he, Abram was able to do with a few men, with he, what he and the other kings weren't able to do with likely thousands of men. So he goes out and he welcomes Abram upon his return. He meets him at a place known as King's Valley, which was uh, located near the ancient city of Salem. And because we know what kind of place Sodom was, we know that this king was a very wicked king. But just about the same time the king of Sodom reaches Abram, we learn that a second king also goes out to meet Abram. This time it's the king of Salem, a new king, one we haven't been introduced to yet. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So this king, Melchizedek, is the king of Salem. Now Salem is the city that would eventually become to be known as the holy city of Jerusalem. Ah. Now Melchizedek, the name, actually means king of righteousness. So, so we know that this is a righteous king um, as opposed to the king of Sodom. So two very different pictures that we're getting here. And we're also told that he's a priest of Abram's God. So Melchizedek is a God-fearing Canaanite priest king of Jerusalem. So he was a Canaanite king, just like the king of Sodom was, except somehow he came to, to believe in and to serve the one true God. So this king meets Abram outside Salem and brings him some provisions of bread and wine. And he does this to meet Abram's needs from his long journey back home, but he also does it as a sign of goodwill and generosity toward Abram. So not only are Melchizedek's hands full of gifts, for Abram, but also we see that his lips are full of blessing. Look at verse 19. And Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Remember, back in chapter 12, part of God's promise to Abram was that God would bless those who bless Abram and that Abram himself would be a blessing to others. Well, Melchizedek is blessing Abram here and he's doing that by reminding Abram who it was that gave Abram the victory, who it was that blessed Abram. He says, blessed are you, Abram, by God most high. That's the title El Elyon, the one who created, possesses, and owns everything in the universe. And he's not finished yet. Look at verse 20. He goes on and Melchizedek says, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. See, Melchizedek's lips not only bring blessing to God, but they bring praise, or blessing to Abram, but they bring praise to God. See, this priest king is blessing God and reminding Abram that, that as outskilled and as outnumbered as Abram and his men were, the reason that he won the battle was because it was God who empowered him. 
The victory was God's. And because Abram recognized that Melchizedek's blessing came from God, because he recognized that Melchizedek was a man of faith in God, and because he, he recognized Melchizedek as an actual priest of God, Abram, honor, Abram honors Melchizedek, and he worships God by giving the priest a tithe, a tenth of everything that, that he had. And that's an act of a humble man who doesn't take credit for anything, but who gives the credit where it's due gives the credit to God. So where's the king of Sodom in all of this? Well, it seems like he's watching this exchange between Abram and Melchizedek, and now he's kind of thinking, all right, well, I'm going to make a better offer. So he brought out bread and wine. What's that? I'm going to make him a better offer. So he steps up and offers his own deal to Abram, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, this deal that it, the king of Sodom offers Abram is actually quite humorous. He's saying, you take all the goods, you just give me the people. And the reason why this is silly is because, first off, by custom, it was Abram's right to keep everything that he acquired and everyone he rescued. That was his right. And second, Abram and his men just returned from humiliating the very army that humiliated the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom wasn't in any position whatsoever to be making demands of Abram. And yet Abram makes it clear he wants nothing from the king and he wants nothing to do with the king or with the people of Sodom. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So Abram's telling this wicked king that he made an oath to the Lord, to Yahweh, and what are the contents of his oath? Verse 23, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So imagine that behind Abram stretches this long caravan of all the spoils of war, the jewelry, the pottery, the furniture, the weapons, all the precious metals, a tremendous amount of worth and value, and yet, he refuses to take any of the plunder for himself, even the smallest thing. Why? Because Abram refuses to allow the evil king to take credit for anything that God was doing. Abram's refusal to the king is sort of his statement, his declaration of dependence on God. He has no problem allowing his allies to benefit from the victory, but he has no interest in being indebted to, the, in being indebted to this evil king. Look at verse 24. He says, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. And that closes out the chapter. So, what does all of this mean for us? Because this chapter has revealed some new character traits for Abram's growing faith. And we see some character traits that emerged from this event. We see uh, character traits of courage and humility. Well, those are two character traits that ought to define and describe our faith as well. So let's first talk about Abram's courage. See, the first thing we learn from the courage of Abram, from his example, is that a person of faith can dare to be courageous. A person of faith can dare to be courageous. As the muscles of Abram's faith grew, so did his courage 
In fact, we see two specific ways in Genesis 14 that this courageous faith gets worked out. See, one way we can exercise courageous faith is by refusing to back down from the face of challenges because courageous faith refuses to retreat from conflict. Courageous faith refuses to retreat from conflict. Think about Abram. Initially, he had no skin in the game when it came to the political conflicts of the nine kings. But when his relative got caught up in the mess of it, he marched forward in battle. He could have easily made the excuse, oh man, those, those eastern kings are, are thousands strong, they're skilled, they're experienced, I only have a few hundred guys who've never fought in battle and I'm pushing 80 years old, there's no way I'm doing this. But that wasn't his response. Instead, he refused to retreat from the necessary conflict that was in front of him. So what does this look like for Christians in the 21st century, New Covenant Christians, to demonstrate this kind of courageous faith. See, the New Testament makes clear that unlike Abram and and our spiritual forefathers, our conflict is no longer one of flesh and blood. It's one of a spiritual nature. It's what people through the centuries have called the Christian's threefold battle, the battle against the world, the battle against the flesh, and the battle against the devil. See, that's where our conflict lies. For example, we're taught in Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, right? The world wants to conform us. It wants to tell us what to think, how to think, how to dress, how to live, what to buy, what to prioritize, who to worship. But the faith of a courageous Christian stands in opposition to the patterns and ways of the world. It's a courageous faith that concerns itself with pleasing God regardless of what other people might say, regardless of what other people might think. It's a courageous faith that stands for righteousness in a society that so easily accommodates itself to evil. It's a courageous faith that pledges allegiance to Jesus Christ in a culture so often against him. And it's a courageous faith that spreads the true gospel of Jesus in a culture that says all religions eventually lead to God. So that's our conflict against the world. When it comes to the conflict against the flesh, the New Testament reminds us that we're exiles in this world and it urges us in 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to this, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, we do battle against our flesh by surrendering to the Spirit's control of our lives, realizing that the victory that Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection gives us all the power that we need to to stand and wage war against our flesh. I love how John Piper puts it. He says this. He says, The Spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh, so take heart if your soul feels like a battlefield at times. The main point, however, is not war, but victory for the Spirit. When you walk by the Spirit, you nip the desires of the flesh in the bud. New God-centered desires crowd out old man-centered desires. Scripture promises victory over the desires of the flesh, not that there won't be a war, but that the winner of that war will be the Spirit. Then he goes on and says, in fact, the decisive battle has been fought and won by the Spirit. The Spirit has captured the capital and broken the back of the resistance movement. The flesh is as good as dead. Its doom is sure, but there are outlying pockets of resistance. The guerrillas of the flesh will not lay down their arms and must be fought back daily. The only way to do it is by the Spirit, and that's what it means to walk by the Spirit. So live that he gives victory over the dwindling resistance movement of the flesh. 
So that's our war against the flesh. The third front of our battle is against the devil. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, we have a very real, very deceptive enemy, and he fights against everything that is good, everything that is holy, everything that is just, everything that is pure, everything that is righteous. And he uses tactics like distraction, deception, temptation, oppression, division, and confusion. But listen to what Paul says next. He says, Therefore, because this is all true, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. See, the reality is that Satan is a defeated foe. He was disarmed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But until that day comes when he's vanquished for good, we need to be a praying people. Our weapon, our war room, is prayer. Prayer is the piece that activates the rest of the spiritual armor. See, when we don't pray, it's like having an unplugged refrigerator or a car without gas. Prayer is the divinely authorized mechanism God has given us to tap into his power. Without prayer, we'll be ineffective in spiritual warfare. But with prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be victorious. So courageous faith refuses to retreat from conflict. It doesn't back down in the face of spiritual challenges. And then there's a second way Genesis 14 teaches us how to exercise courageous faith. And that's by refusing to disregard those who have been taken captive by the world. In other words, courageous faith refuses to reject the captives. See, when Abram learned that Lot had been taken captive, he responded by mustering his personal army of servants. He didn't hesitate to carry out the seemingly impossible mission. He, he easily could have rejected Abram, he could, uh, uh, Lot. He could have easily reasoned with himself, well, Lot is the one who brought this on himself. After all, he's the one who chose to live in the evil city of Sodom. But that's not what Abram did. He didn't make any excuses, and he didn't judge Lot for the troubles that Lot brought upon himself. See, courageous faith makes us independent of the world, but it should never make us indifferent toward the world. A person of courageous faith longs to see freedom come to those who are entangled in the meshes of sin. Courageous faith will do what it takes to help rescue a fallen brother or a fallen sister. Courageous faith sees the crisis of another person as a call to action. Maybe we can take a cue from one pastor's daughter, 18-year-old Jody Braw. During her junior year of high school, this pastor's daughter, Jody, struggled with her faith. She struggled in having a faith of her own. She wanted to know in her heart that everything that she'd been taught to believe was actually true, and she wanted to know that Jesus was real. And she was headed down a dark road, but God, in his love, pursued her down that road. And so she did eventually find a faith of her own. And when she graduated from high school, she said this to her dad. She said, Dad, I don't think God wants me to go to college right now. I want to take a year to go to Haiti, and I want to serve people in a medical mission down there. Her father, 
a pastor said, are you sure you want to do this? Jody, it's 3,000 miles away from home. It's AIDS-infested and the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And do you know it's controlled by the voodoo religion? I know all that, she said. But I feel like God wants me to go and help those people. So that's exactly what she did. And then one night, after she was in Haiti for a little bit, her dad gets an email from Jody and listened to this email that she wrote. She said, Dad, tonight has been the most remarkable night of my life. I got called out to this hut to deliver a baby. Dad, I've only delivered one, and that was with somebody. I'd never done this by myself, but I was the only one around. They called me, and I get to this hut, and there's this naked, screaming lady on the dirt floor. I got a flashlight, and I'm thinking, here I am, 18 years old, and I'm in a hut in a third-world country with a naked, screaming pregnant lady. I have a flashlight, and I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm here. To make matters worse, this lady from the voodoo religion walked into the hut, dressed in her red and blue voodoo garb, and began to chant some voodoo incantation in Creole. She put some kind of oil on the lady's head, and when she started to walk away from me and the woman, she stopped at the woman's belly, put some other kind of salve there, and walked the opposite direction, all while chanting this Creole spell. I didn't know what to do, Dad. She stood at the head of this woman and stared a hole right through me. When I was getting ready to deliver this baby, I just looked back at her, and I started singing. I knew she didn't understand English, but I started singing, Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. With wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. And then she said this. She said the voodoo lady became completely unglued. She grabbed all of her stuff and ran out of that hut. And Jody closed the email to her dad and said, that night I knew that that baby was going to be born with the blessing of God and not the curse of Satan. Church, that's what courageous faith looks like. In fact, this was the mission of Jesus himself when he came to earth. Listen to his words from Luke 4.18. He said this in the beginning of his ministry. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Did you catch that? Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim liberty to the captives to set liberty at those who are oppressed. Church, as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. His mission is our mission. It's one of relying on the power of Jesus to stand up and fight for those who've been taken captive by the world. It's a faith that stands for those who are unjustly oppressed. It's a faith that looks beyond the rationale of the why of someone's situation, why they're poor, why they're oppressed, why they're in addiction. It's a faith that rises above the media-fueled political mindset of us versus them and reaches out in love and grace to all people of all languages, all colors, all political views, all religions, all sexual identities for the sake of their soul, for the sake of the gospel, and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Matt, I'm going to have to use your towel here, brother. <laughs> Courageous faith refuses to retreat from spiritual conflict, and it refuses to reject the captives. See, but there's another aspect of Abram's faith that was on display throughout this chapter, and that was the humility that he showed after the battle was won. 
So not only should a person of faith dare to be courageous, but see, we also learn that a person of faith should demonstrate humility. A person of faith should demonstrate humility. And in Genesis 14, we also see two specific ways this humble faith gets worked out. See, one way we could demonstrate humility is by refusing to accept the glory and the credit for the things that God accomplishes in and through us. In other words, humble faith refuses to receive the credit. Think about Abram when he was dealing with Melchizedek. He didn't grab the glory and the the honor of the victory for himself. Instead, he gave the credit to God. Much the same way, we need to be cautious against using our gifts, our talents, our successes to exalt ourselves. Instead, we need to recognize that every accomplishment, every victory, every success, every challenge that grows and shapes us comes from God. Listen to how the New Testament puts it. It says this, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. See, church, God is the sufficient one who enables us. He's the sufficient one who empowers us. He's the sufficient one who equips us. So your ability to grow in knowledge comes from God. Your ability to exercise wisdom comes from God. Your ability to love your neighbor well, to love your spouse well, to lead your family well, all comes from the hand of God. May it be the desire of every single follower of Jesus in this room to live every breath of our lives to the glory of Jesus. Professor Dale Dury at Bethel University shares this story about his grandfather who lived out this reality until his dying breath. He tells a story that on a fall afternoon, his grandfather was at home with his grandmother and they heard a knock at the door. The visitor was a neighbor lady And she came to talk to the grandfather, and she said this to the grandfather. She said, I was out feeding the horses, and I felt like God was prompting me to come and say thank you for the difference you've made in my life. Then she she sat down, and she began to tell stories about the times when the grandfather showed love and grace and kindness to her as a widow. She, he, she talked about how he cared for, for her in practical ways by taking care of her, her cows and her horses and did all kinds of these practical things. She thanked him for being so real and she went through this litany of good deeds, including him helping her bring reconciliation and peace in her relationships with her children. And she closed by telling him, I just felt like God wanted me to tell you that. The grandfather paused and looked at her and said, it was Jesus Christ who did it. Then the grandmother struck up a conversation with the lady. A few seconds later, they heard a cough and they saw the grandfather slumped over dead. He was now with Jesus. And yet, that man's dying words were, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who did it. Humble faith refuses to receive the credit. And then quickly, a second way Genesis 14 teaches us to exercise humble faith is by refusing to jeopardize our integrity. In other words, humble faith refuses to risk its character. Abram refused the handsome offer made by the king of Sodom because he remembered that God was the one who promised to bless him. God was the one who promised to protect him. So he remained uncompromised in his devotion to God. There's this little magazine called Men of Integrity, 
And in one of their early issues, uh, the then president of Moody Bible Institute, Dr. Joseph Stowell, he tells a conversation he had with a pastor in the former Soviet Union. And the pastor said this in the conversation. He said, Stalin's reign was the worst time. I had two KGB agents come to me and say, we'll take care of you. You stay the pastor of that church, but once a week, give us a report on every one of these Christians. Work for us. So he responded to the KGB and said, I can't do that to God, and I can't do that to this flock. So they sent him to a prison camp in Siberia. He endured forced labor and the cold for 10 years. But he did find other Christians in the camp, and God used these believers to fulfill his purposes. He said this, he said, I was a carpenter building towns for Stalin. We'd go out in 60-mile radiuses, and there we would fellowship together. Today, there are hundreds of churches in Siberia as a result of these small prisoner fellowship groups. And the article closed with this statement. It said, when men refuse to compromise, they may lose much, but through them, God will fulfill his higher eternal purpose. Church, may there be an integrity in our lives that stands out to the world around us as a testimony to our faith. So let's refuse to take the moral shortcuts. Let's refuse to, to the, the daily temptations to make a spiritual compromises. Let's refuse to surrender our convictions for the sake of convenience. And let's refuse to jeopardize our Christian character because humble faith refuses to risk its character. So may we be a people marked by a courageous faith, by a humble faith, remembering that the Jesus in us is sufficient to supply all the courage and all the humility we need to live this kind of faithful life. Because if there's anything we take away from Genesis 14, it's that true faith expresses itself in courageous humility. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. God, I pray for each one of us in this room, Lord, that we would um, become people of courageous faith and humble faith. And Lord, we recognize that apart from Christ, these things are impossible. We may show them outwardly, but if it's apart from Christ, even our motivations will be wrong. Lord, so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would fill each one of us with your spirit. God, that we would not live out this faith in isolation, that we would not live out this faith um, in cowardice, but that it would be courageous, that it would be humble. And Lord, there's no better person who demonstrated this in Christ himself. Thank you, Jesus, for being so courage so courageous in, in going to the cross for our sins. Thank you for that courage that brought us new life. And Jesus, thank you for doing it in absolute humility because you didn't need to. You didn't sin. You didn't mess up. You stepped down from your rightful place in heaven to become humble like a human and to die the death that belonged to each one of us. Lord Jesus, for that, we're eternally grateful. 
Lord Jesus, you are our cornerstone, God. So I pray that you would continue to be the cornerstone, Jesus, of our churches, be the cornerstone of our lives, be the cornerstone of our families, be the cornerstone of our faith. And God, remind us that our hope for this kind of courageous faith rests in the ability of the Lord Jesus living his life in us, living his life through us. Not us, but Christ. All God's children said, amen. Would you stand and join us in a closing song of worship?